Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you for reading for us, Nick. And um, if you could keep that passage open, we can be uh, diving into that together. And you can find space for notes on page four of the bulletin as well. But before we turn our attention now to God's word, let's ask for his help in prayer. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we, we thank you so much for the time we've already spent together um, hearing your word, singing your word, uh, coming to you in prayer. Um, and Lord, we ask now uh, that you would continue to work amongst us by your spirit. Um, Lord, we ask that you might open our eyes to see your mighty works. And uh, we ask that you, by your spirit, would wield the sword of your spirit, your mighty word. Um, Lord, uh, change us, transform us, build us up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few weeks of the summer, we've been looking together at the armor of God from Ephesians 6. Now, last week, our kids did a great job at reciting uh, the verses about this. So I wanted to thank Karen and uh, Ellen and Liz and everyone who worked so faithfully teaching our Sunday school kids about this over the summer. And now, not only did the kids recite these verses, we had the armor of God on full display. Over the summer, kids, you, you crafted the belt of truth, uh, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, and as we considered uh, last week, the shield of faith as well. And now the kids also made a helmet of salvation and were wielding swords, I should make clear, foam swords, not, not the real thing. Uh, and it is these two final items of armor that we're looking at today, uh, the, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Uh, and as we do, it is good to remind ourselves, God doesn't just speak about this armor to provide us with a good object lesson for a summer Sunday school. Now, God tells us all of this, both kids and grown-ups as well, uh, to put on his armor. Why? Well, well, because we really need it. We need this because we're embroiled in a war. Not a conventional war. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. But we are involved in a cosmic war. We face off against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Jesus tells us there is a real devil. And I wonder how you feel about that. I wonder if perhaps we should perhaps feel a little bit more scared. And now in God's good timing, he's destined for destruction. But before that day, he's determined to take as many people there with him as possible. And Satan doesn't just want to disrupt us or discourage us, but rather if it were possible, he wants to destroy us as well. And it would be the height of arrogance to believe that we can somehow face the devil on our own. No, we need to be strong in the Lord. We need to rely on the strength of his might. And to help us do this and to help us understand this, we find this illustration of God's armor. Each item of armor demonstrates a particular way that we, we live in light of God's strength. 
We put on the belt of truth. We rely on God's truth. We, we seek to, to, to build a worldview based on true belief as it's revealed in the scriptures. And we live in light of God's righteousness. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is, it isn't just what we believe, but also God is concerned with how we behave. And we let our lives be shaped by the good news of peace. That is, Christ has made peace, and so now we need to pursue peace with one another and, and preach this good news of peace to the world. And last week, we considered how we need to live by faith. That is, we need to rationally and relationally rely upon Jesus Christ for our salvation and for our ongoing safety. And now, as we look at these final two items, we see something very similar. Here are two more ways in which we rely on God. Uh, To put on the helmet of salvation, what does that mean? Well, it means we need to recall the mighty works of God. And to take up the sword of the Spirit, what does that mean? Well, it means we need to rely on God's mighty word as well. In fact, these are our two points today. Be strong in the Lord by recalling God's mighty works and be strong in the Lord by relying on God's mighty word. And be strong in the Lord by recalling God's mighty work and by relying on God's mighty word. In this way, we're able to stand against our spiritual enemy, the devil. And so firstly, we need to recall the mighty works of God. Put on the helmet of salvation, writes Paul. In other words, actively bring to mind the way God has fully and finally accomplished your salvation. And now in one sense, this is what the book of Ephesians is all about. Remember what we're doing in this series. We're trying to look at each item of armor and considering uh, how really it unpacks something that, that has been explained in the book of Ephesians. Now, one of the aims of this letter is to help us understand what God has done. The aim is to help us understand how, according to God's great power, he has, in Christ, accomplished our salvation. And that salvation has multiple dimensions. We see this in chapters 1 through 3 in particular. Often in Paul's letters, we get this pattern. The first half is very very focused on doctrine, and the second half is focused more on, on practical living, on behavior. Now, in these first chapters, we see God's power, but we see God's power at work towards us or, or on behalf of us as believers. Now, I love the way that Paul lays this out, particularly chapters 2 through 3. So uh, why don't you kind of flick back and take a look, because in chapters 2 through 3, we get these three dramatic before and after pictures. Now, you know the kind of thing I'm talking about. You've seen this multiple times, perhaps on those uh, TV infomercials or something like that. And we get a picture of, of before, perhaps someone struggling with, with a bad back, kind of limping along. And then we get this unbelievable picture after uh, of how, because they've used this new back brace, now they're like Superman, scaling buildings, running marathons, doing all kinds of crazy things that are impossible for most of us. And now those infomercials are just a bit tacky, I have to admit, but I assure you there's, there's nothing tacky about what we read in Ephesians. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we get the first picture. Uh, And what is that picture? Well, it tells us that before we were spiritually dead. Before Christ, we were like spiritual zombies. And we might have thought we were free. But we were slavishly following the way of the world, satisfying our own desires, ultimately slaves of the devil. But now in Christ, we see God's resurrection. And the second picture comes in verses 11 through 22. Before we knew Christ, we were far off, writes Paul. We were estranged from God. We were without God and without hope in the world. And on top of that, we were outsiders, cut off from the people of God. 
but now in Christ we've been brought near. Now in Christ we belong. Now in Christ we are full members of God's own family. We've been brought not only back to God, but together as God's people. And if that wasn't enough, we also get a third picture at the start of chapter 3. There we discover that we used to live in ignorance, in the darkness of ignorance. We, all we had was our speculation about God. All we used to have were our own ideas, our own opinions about him. But now through Christ, God has, has been made known. The great mystery, the mystery of God and his plan has now been revealed. In Christ, God has come to earth not to condemn us or to destroy us, but to save for himself all kinds of people. And so taking all of this together, what is salvation? Well, it's all of these things. It's passing from death to life, uh, from being brought near from far off. It is being brought out of the darkness of ignorance into the, the marvelous light of God's revelation. And listen, there is nothing we have done about any of this. There is nothing we could do. All of this is, is a mighty work of God. That's the point of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. God has come in Christ to save us. And we see this even more clearly when we consider the background. After all, this language of the helmet of salvation isn't something new for Paul. No, this very phrase, the helmet of salvation, is something that we read about in the Old Testament. In fact, if you have a Bible, turn back with me to Isaiah 59. Uh, Isaiah 59. In case you're struggling to find it, it's, uh, it's, it's roughly in the middle of the Bible. If you open uh, right in the middle there, you might find it. Or you can always use the contents page. There is no shame in the fact that you might be new to the Bible. Uh, we're going to read from Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 and verse 14. Isaiah 59 verse 14. And now in this passage, um, Isaiah is lamenting all of the evil in the world. Uh, and as we read these verses in a moment, you'll see they sound so contemporary. This could be an editorial from the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or something. I look down at verse 14. Justice is turned back, he writes. And righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and, and how true that is. Uh, and he who departs from evil makes himself prey. Isaiah is describing a time that was set on evil, a time when if you stuck your neck out for what is right, well, well, people were just going to take your head off, weren't they? And then Isaiah turns to God and how he feels about what is happening in the world. Is God far off? Is God indifferent? Verse 15 continues, no, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. And what grieves God when he looks at the world isn't just the injustice, but how, how prevalent that injustice is. As we read in verse 16, God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. All of us are sinners. All of us are part of the problem with the world rather than part of the solution. And this is the state of the world then in Isaiah's day, but is it not the state of the world now? At mapping this with Ephesians left to ourselves, all of us are spiritually dead. All of us are far off and estranged from God. All of us live in the darkness of our own ignorance. And this is what God sees when he looks at the world. So we have to ask, where is the hope? Well, look at verse 16 again. Isaiah 59 verse 16 tells us the answer. God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate. Have you heard that before? Uh, and a helmet of salvation 
on his head. Do you see that phrase? He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Uh, This is a picture of God arming himself for war and coming down. Uh, God himself doing something to do with all of the evil and injustice in the world. And this surely is the point. This is the point that Paul has been making throughout his letter to the Ephesians. Uh, The way God has done something is by the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, When we were helpless, when there was nothing we could do to save ourselves, now God in Christ put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Uh, And through his perfect life and sacrificial death, through his resurrection, uh, God has fully and finally dealt a death blow to all evil. And ultimately, Paul wants us to see this salvation is a done deal. Through the cross, God has already, once and for all, fully and finally accomplished everything necessary for salvation, past, present, and future. And maybe an illustration will help. Imagine for a moment a a new building, perhaps a new community center or a new library or, or something like that. For months, you've seen them working on it. Firstly, someone drew up some plans and then a crew came and cleared the ground and, and began to lay a solid foundation. Now, gradually, the walls begin to go up, and then the roof, and then all of the interior work begins, the wiring, the vents, all of the finishing. The building is filled with desks, with books, with things like that, and, and finally, it's all ready to go, and, except there's one thing that needs to happen. There has to be that, that grand opening ceremony. The mayor of the town has to come, and, and, and they usually cut that ribbon. I'm not sure where that comes from, but, but we always seem to do it. Uh, And in one sense, our salvation is like this, according to Paul. Uh, The foundations have already been laid. The walls have already been built. The wiring, the ductwork is done. It's been finished in Christ. Christ has done it all. In fact, Christ has even cut the ribbon. Uh, And now this great salvation is open. It is open to anyone and everyone who believes in him. And in fact, even this faith is a gift from God himself. I know the analogy isn't perfect, but hopefully you get the point. The point is to highlight the mighty works of God in Christ. God has done it all. That's the point. And what I'm saying is we need to recall this. And we need to recall it often. This is what it means to put on the helmet of salvation. We have to fill our minds with these great truths. Everything we experience in this life has to be viewed in light of this. We have to allow God's mighty works in Christ to dominate our horizon and shape our perspective. This is what it means to put on the helmet of salvation. It means to actively bring to mind the way that God has fully and finally accomplished a great salvation. Uh, So how do we do that? How How do we put this on in a practical way? Well, on a personal level, it's worth asking ourselves, what do we spend our time thinking about? What do we spend our time thinking about? Where do you, where does your mind go? Where does your mind go, particularly when you have a little bit of downtime? Uh, Just like your car engine idles and ticks over, uh, what is your mental idol, we could say? Uh, What does your mind tick over about? Uh, Maybe part of the problem is that we never actually stop and think about much at all. And if so, the first step might be this, to carve out just five minutes a day. Five minutes a day to spend some time in deliberate focus. Uh, to think about Christ, about who he is and what he's done, Uh, to think about his salvation and what that means for you. Uh, How can you do that? Well, here's an idea. Here's just one suggestion. Uh, How about committing to read a Christian book, perhaps one Christian book for every one or two novels? 
Or how about this? Instead of, of doom scrolling when you have some downtime, instead open up a Bible app and, and read a few verses from the Word of God. In fact, I found a great little app to help with that. It's called Redeeming the Time. I think it's in uh, Google Play and it's also in the App Store, I believe. All you do is open the app and, and select how much time you have, five minutes, three minutes, whatever it is, as you're sat there in the waiting room. And, and it actually gives you a short passage of scripture that will take about that long to read. Yeah, I'm not saying everyone should do that, but just find some way. That, it's a very practical, isn't it? Put on the helmet of salvation. Think about what God has done for you and do it regularly. Do it consistently. And of course, this idea of putting on the helmet of salvation isn't just a personal thing. It's, it's a joint thing. It's something we do together as God's people. In one sense, that is why we're here now, isn't it? That's what the Lord's Day is for. That's the purpose of our worship services. We read about God's salvation in his word. We sing about God's salvation along to music. We confess our need for God's salvation when we confess our sins. We hear reassuring words to remind us that God has indeed saved us. We hear a sermon, a sermon that at the very least should include some reminder of God's mighty works. Because this isn't just the theme of Ephesians. No, it's, it's the overall theme of the whole Bible, isn't it? And so it should be our theme, not only in our service, but also in our fellowship after the service or, or midweek in our growth groups. It's so easy to allow what is happening in our lives or in the world to dominate our minds, isn't it? And all of those things matter. We should think about those things, but we shouldn't allow those things to dominate our horizon completely. We need to see beyond those things. We need help, don't we? We need to prevent them eclipsing our view of God and what he has done for us in Jesus. And so writes Paul, put on the helmet of salvation. This is how you take your stand against the schemes of the devil. One of the great schemes of the devil is to cause us to forget, to forget our salvation in Jesus Christ and so recall God's mighty works, put on the helmet of salvation. And let's strive to actively bring to mind the fact that God has fully and finally accomplished salvation through Jesus. But secondly, as we recall God's mighty works, what do we also need to do? Well, we also need to rely on God's mighty word. What I mean is we have to have confidence in Scripture as God's Spirit-empowered means. Uh, scripture is His means of applying His salvation to us and applying that salvation to other people. Uh, Ephesians six seventeen continues, And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, the Bible in Scripture is compared to various things. It is our daily bread. It is a lamp to our feet. And here we discover it is also like a mighty sword. Now, I have to say, maybe off the bat, uh, hearing the Bible described as a sword makes you feel a little bit nervous. Uh, so just to be clear, what, what we're not saying here is, is this is not a call to weaponize Scripture. And sadly, we see this all too often. We see people do this. We see it in marriages. We see it in families, in ministries, or even in churches. The Bible can be used to coerce. It can be used to control. The Bible can be used in such a way as to undermine a person's self-confidence, to violate their sense of personal agency, or to call them, cause them to call into question their own sense of judgment. I think in the husband who tries to use the Bible to manipulate his wife to submit, or the pastor who uses the Bible to try to convince you to come to their church, or the person who uses the Bible to persuade you to be involved in their ministry, who makes you feel guilty if they're not a part of their small group, 
If you sense that anyone, including myself, is using the Bible to do that, then I encourage you to run in the opposite direction. Uh, God's word is not a sword in that it's intended to be used to manipulate or attack. Uh, Remember, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. That's what Paul writes in these verses. And so if the word of God is compared to a sword, it isn't a sword to be used on one another. It is not a weapon against flesh and blood. It's against our true enemy, the devil, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren. In other words, the Bible is a weapon, but it's not some weapon we wield against one another. No, it's a weapon in our true spiritual war. Uh, Now, all of us are involved in in a spiritual war. Uh, And as I speak about spiritual warfare, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about something kind of weird and wonderful. Uh, The point is not that we should use the Bible superstitiously. Uh, We aren't talking about uh, the people I once met who wrote Bible verses on their doorpost to keep the demons away from them. Uh, Nor are we interested in embroidering the scriptures onto our underwear to avoid temptation. And no, the point is that that we need to recognize God's word as God's powerful needs. Uh, Putting it very simply, uh, from the very beginning of time, God's word is how God works. God's word is how God works. Think of creation itself. Uh, The very universe exists because God spoke, let there be light. Uh, And this is true not just of creation, it's true of salvation as well. Just as God created the world through his word, so he uses his word to perform a miracle, the miracle of recreation. Uh, Through his word, he brings people to saving faith. And then through his word, he slowly but surely sanctifies them. Uh, You see, in addition to Isaiah 59, we see another picture of God as a man of war. I'm thinking of Revelation 19, where we see the image of Christ himself. Listen to how Christ is described in Revelation 14, 11. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And now we have to say that's a very different image of Jesus Christ than Jesus in the manger, Jesus meek and mild. It's a reminder that one day Christ will return in power to judge and to bring the fullness of salvation, to bring us into his eternal kingdom. But look at what we're told about Christ and how he exercises his power. Down there in Revelation 14, verse 15, we're told of Christ that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. The word of Christ is powerful. It is powerful both to judge and to save. The word of Christ is like a sharp sword. Uh, this is what we hold in our hands when we read the Bible, the sword of Christ's mouth. Uh, he uses it to divide the sheep and the goats. He uses it to gather for himself a kingdom from every tribe and tongue and nation. Uh, he uses it to strike down, to destroy his spiritual enemies. Uh, the Bible is the sword of the spirit. So next time, pick up your, next time you pick up your Bible, I suppose I should say you better watch your fingers. The problem is we struggle to believe this at times, don't we? We think of the Bible as just another book. A book, if we're honest, we struggle to read. A book that we often find difficult, that we find confusing. Uh, Let's be honest, in our worst moments, perhaps a book we even find boring. It doesn't look like a sword. It doesn't feel like a sword, except, of course, it does feel like a sword, especially when we actually come to understand it. Uh, As we read in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. 
It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And I have to say, if you've ever read the Bible consistently, you'll know exactly what that means. How often have you been called out? How often has your heart been pierced by the power of the Scriptures? And through his word, God exposes our sin. He convicts us. He pulls us up short. And, and then through his word, he also comforts us. He draws our sin to the surface so that we can repent of it and experience the free grace of his forgiveness. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit, of course. But we have to ask, what does the Spirit use to do this? Well, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Meaning either that it comes from the Spirit or else it is the means the Spirit uses. Either way, the point is this. We have to rely on God's mighty word. We need to have confidence as we struggle to read it that God will indeed use it. And we need to be confident that he'll use it, not just in our own lives, but also that he'll use his word powerfully in the lives of other people. Uh, This is what God uses, we could say, to bridge the gap between what God has done for us in Christ, that was the first point that we just made, uh, and what God is doing for us now within us. That's really the focus of the second point. And this, again, is something that we see so clearly in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. God has accomplished our salvation once for all in Christ, yes, but now, uh, what's he doing now? Well, now through his word, he's applying that salvation to real, everyday people. He can even say in chapter 3 that even as we read these words, the words of Ephesians, God will powerfully work to give us fresh insight into his plans and his purposes. And so to take up the sword of the Spirit means this. It means to rely on God's mighty word. It means to have confidence in Scripture as the primary means that God uses. And I have to say that's a challenge to me as your pastor, isn't it? I mean, there are so many things that I might do with my time, so many things that I might try and trust in. I think of a quote that a friend of mine shared just recently. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it because I think it makes the point so perfectly. In addressing pastors, this is what the author said. If you think that you were called to keep a largely worldly organization miscalled a church going, with infinitesimally small doses of innocuous sub-Christian drugs and stimulants, then the only help I can give you is to advise you to give up hope of the ministry and go and be a street scavenger instead. Now that's pretty, pretty strong if you followed that. His point is that the goal of a pastor isn't to serve as a CEO. No, the goal of a pastor, the goal of the elders is to feed the sheep. And as such, the same author goes on. And really gives us a question that gets to the heart of the matter. Do we really believe that the word of God, by his spirit, changes as well as maddens men? If we do to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of the sheep, we must be men of the word of God. And now that's true not just of pastors like me, but it's true of you, isn't it? How are we, each one of us, to take up the sword of the Spirit in our home life, in our work, or out in our community? Really, the application is the same for you as it is for me. What are you trusting in? What are you relying on to bring change? What will change your own life? What will change your marriage if you are married? What will God use to change your children if you have them? Do you believe that you can bring change through force of your own will? Uh, Do you believe that you can change your spouse or your kids by the strength uh, that you have somehow by the art of persuasion? 
If only you discipline your kids the right way, they'll be perfect. Or what about this? If only you speak to your spouse with the right love language, well, then they'll love and respect you. Well, good luck with that. And there are lots of things we could rely on to help us bring change. But the question is, do we really believe that the word of God, by his spirit, changes as well as maddens men? If we do, to be husbands, to be wives, to be children, to be parents, we need to be people of the word of God as well. And this has a vital application to our outreach and evangelism, doesn't it? And so often, out of our desire to reach the lost, we, we hear people use certain, certain phrases. Surely what we need to do, people say, is we need to love people into God's kingdom. And now, of course, it is true we should love our neighbors as well as we possibly can. But can we love people into God's kingdom? No. Can people be brought from death to life through our love for them? No. Can people be brought from far off to near? Can people truly belong through our love? No. Can people's ignorance of God be overcome by our love? No. In fact, to claim any of these things strikes me as the very height of arrogance. Now, what is more, it is to take upon ourselves a burden that God never intended. It is to try uh, to do for other people what God in Christ has already done for them. I know the way people experience these things is by the power of God himself. In Christ, God has done everything necessary to achieve these things. That was the very first point. Bear in mind the mighty works of God. And so how do your friends, your family members, your neighbors, your colleagues, your kids come to experience these things through your love for them? No. Uh, The answer is through God's mighty word, the sword of the spirit that we find here in the scriptures. His word is the sword of the spirit. His word is the means he uses to bring people in and to build people up in their faith. Uh, From cradle to grave, God's word is the primary means he uses to gather and to grow his people. And so are we relying on God's word? Uh, Are we spending time in God's word ourselves? Are we seeking to bring God's word to our families? Uh, Now, I'm not suggesting a particular format for this, I should say. Uh, I don't think you have to do a Bible in a year reading plan or something like that. Uh, Nor do you have to mimic the 17th century pattern of, of family worship. But surely you do want to have time each day or perhaps a few days a week. A time when you read the Bible. It could be together as a family or it could be each on your own or or one-on-one with your kids. Each of our situations is going to be very different. And I think it's wrong to prescribe some particular way that we need to do this. We need to be sensitive to each person's capacity, to each person's personality, even to their level of interest. I'm not suggesting that we Bible bomb our kids. The Bible shouldn't be weaponized against people, remember. But the Bible is a mighty weapon, a mighty weapon to do the works of God, a mighty weapon to overcome our spiritual enemy. He can and will use it in our lives, in our families' lives, in our friends' lives, in our neighbors' lives as well. The gospel, after all, is the power of God unto salvation for all kinds of people. And so let's put on the helmet of salvation, recalling the mighty works of God. And let's take up the sword of the Spirit, relying on the mighty word of God. And let's trust in God powerfully to use his word to accomplish his amazing purposes. And in this way, let's take our stand, relying on God and his strength as we face the assaults of our spiritual enemy. God has powerfully worked for us in Christ, and so may God powerfully work in us through his word 
by his spirit. In fact, let's ask him to do that now. Uh, Would you bow your heads and let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your mighty works. We thank you that in Christ you have done everything for our salvation. And we thank you that though we were once dead, we are now alive in Christ. That where we were, though we were once far off, you have now brought us near in him. And we thank you that though we were once in darkness, you've given us your light, the light of your revelation. You've unveiled the mystery for us in him. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in these things and help us to rely on your word through which you've revealed them. Lord, we pray that you would powerfully work amongst us, even as we come not only to your written word, but also to the word uh, revealed to us as we come to the Lord's table. Lord, draw near to us, we pray. Strengthen us, feed us, build us up. Do a mighty work in our hearts, we pray. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.